There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. American history is riddled with historic highs and lows, events of greatness and events of despair. However, there have been the occasional moments when the nation as a whole was linked arm in arm in a common goal. And in 1962, that goal was to put a man on the moon. The process was a mystery, the objective almost a dream. But for those involved, no one told them it couldn't be done. So they did it. On today's episode, I welcome Mr. Rick Houston. He's a NASCAR historian podcast host, NASA enthusiast, and author of the book, Go Flight, The Unsung Heroes of Mission Control. We talk about his adventures as a journalist, his experience writing Go Flight, and some amazing stories that have never been told from behind the scenes of NASA's mission control, as well as a short story about how having the last name Houston pretty much guarantees you'll become a NASA nerd. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay. Game on. At first glance, the room appears to be just another auditorium and just another office building. There are nondescript spaces like it in a million different places all over the world. The carpet is old and a bit bunched up here and there. A few stains dot the floor are the result of who knows how many spilled coffees over the years. There is also a distinct smell to the place. Not quite musty, and not really even a hint of tobacco smoke that once hung over the room. Maybe it's a faint remnant of the electronics that once hummed and buzzed here. The odor is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It is just distinct. The four rows of consoles facing the front of the room are almost quaint in their simplicity. Workstations feature a rotary dial phone and canisters, too, to send messages to back rooms via pneumatic tubes, the very same kind of transport system featured at your local bank's drive through window. No email, no instant messaging here. Yet if there's a temptation to dismiss the room out of hand, images of events past begin to sink in, and the sheer enormity of everything that took place here hits like a ton of bricks. Only a handful of places inspire such an overwhelming sense of history. And that is a short intro about NASA's mission control room from the book Go Flight, the Unsung Heroes of Mission Control, 
1965 to 1992 by Rick Houston and Milt Heflin with a forward by John Aaron. And I'm lucky enough to be hanging out here with the author, Rick Houston, who's got pretty cool background. So Rick, I'll just a little bit of intro from you. So Rick, so veteran journalist, 25 years full-time experience, produced countless bylines for a wide variety of publications and websites, including everything from NASCAR to NASA to NCAA sports, served as a staff writer and Bush series editor for Winston Cup scene from November 94 to August 03, native of Nashville, Tennessee, served as an associate producer and consultant on the documentary film Mission Control, the unsung heroes of Apollo produced by Haviland Digital Audio about the people who worked in Mission Control during the Apollo era. The project was inspired by Rick's book, Go Flight, the Unsung Heroes of Mission Control. Several of Rick's NASCAR-related works include Second to None, the History of the NASCAR Bush Series, NASCAR's Greatest Race, the 1992 Hooters 500, and Dale vs. Daytona. That sounds pretty legit. <laughs> the Intimidator's Quest to Win the Great American Race are now considered benchmark works against which other books in the genre are judged. He is also the host of the Scene Vault podcast, specializing in NASCAR history. It's got over 450 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's awesome. And also, a little fun fact, Rick is kind of a movie star. <laughs> so you're the first movie star I've, I've, uh, I've had a chat with, but you served as, and correct me here, a consultant on the film First Man about Neil Armstrong's Moonwalk starring Ryan Gosling. Yes. Right? Yes. Movie star. Yeah. They, you, you use the term movie star very, very loosely. <laughs> very loosely. <laughs> well, Rick, thank you for the time. Thank you for the hospitality. This is our first Away Game podcast. We are here at the NASCAR Technical Institute, which is where what happens that you just told me a minute ago? It's basically a training center for uh, future motorsports mechanics. Okay. So all the cr- your crews, your, you know, Crew chiefs, the pit, all the people that do all the stuff behind the scenes for the the actual races. If they want to get into racing as a as a uh, crew member, this is where they should come. Okay. Uh, now it's not a guaranteed deal, uh, but there have been a lot of people come through these doors who are now on a lot of different teams and a lot of different forms of motorsport. Okay, so this is the training program training grounds for future nascar right got it awesome right so that reading i just did from the book that's from go flight that was your description of the room mission control and if people anyone listen you can if you think of mission control it's most people reference apollo 13 the movie when they think mission control that's kind of what their brains connect to but it's a iconic place where so much more has happened throughout history we're going to cover some of that up into a point but rick's lucky enough to let us do or we're lucky enough to have rick here we're going to do a two-part series so we're going to take this up into apollo 13 so we're going to talk about nasa's kind of history mission controls history of i think ambition combination of ambition success tragedy more success resiliency and then where it all kind of pays off in a way when things kind of hit the fan with Apollo 13. So yes, that's how it's going to go. But first off, Rick, what's your background, man? You grew up in Nashville. How'd you, <laughs> I mean, you have the name to be a NASA guy. So oh, yeah. is that how it all started? Uh, well, no. Um, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. My dad was in the Army when I was born. I maybe shouldn't tell you that, but <laughs> I was actually born on Redstone Arsenal in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, but settled in Nashville when uh, my dad got out of the army in 1972 or three 
and uh, that that's my hometown. Uh, grew up a just an ordinary, average kid, and you know, just kind of cruised through high school. Number one mistake in my life, I, I, I did not apply myself in high school. Graduated completely middle of the road, but I did pick up or I did discover that I had an aptitude for writing. I love journalism, love to write, but I decided that I was going to go into the ministry and uh, graduated from college with a degree in religion. I was going to be the next Billy Graham, uh, but I soon discovered very quickly that I'm a much better writer than I am a public speaker, which is going to become painfully evident here on the podcast. <laughs> it won't take long for you to discover that, but I always loved journalism. Uh, the The writing bug was still within me, and I just started doing freelance. Uh, I had a dream to go to work in NASCAR, and I moved to North Carolina once and came bouncing back to North Carolina when that racing gig didn't work out. I moved to Virginia Beach for another racing gig. That didn't work out. Rolled back to Nashville. And finally, went to, uh, went, moved to North Carolina for good in 92, determined that I, it was going to stick this time. I snuck food out of the press box at races, slept in my car, uh, got to the next race the following weekend and found out that they didn't serve food until Sunday. And I, I was broke. And that, that, was, that was rock bottom for me. But I found out that weekend about a, a, a little small community newspaper in the mountains of North Carolina that needed a sports editor. I stayed there at that paper for two years and then got my dream job to go to work full-time in NASCAR as a reporter uh, for the sport's biggest paper. So 1994, I went to work for Winston Cup Scene, the, the sport's biggest and most influential newspaper at that time. And it, it, yeah, it was a dream gig for 10 years. So you grounded out for a little while before oh, yeah. that. Oh, yeah, man. I, I clawed and, and did basically everything that I could possibly do to, uh, to make a go of it in the sport. Uh, I wrote for free. I wrote for supposedly paid, but then never got paid. I had, you know, I had to do something. What was it about NASCAR that appealed to you? Because this is in what, – what years is this happening? Uh, I first became interested in NASCAR in 1989. I was a big baseball fan growing up. Collected baseball cards, memorabilia, the whole nine yards. Uh, was a huge Pete Rose fan. And, of course, Pete Rose fell off of his pedestal in 1989 and was banished for life. So I had to, I had to have a new passion. I had to have a new hobby. And went to a friend's house. They were watching the Daytona 500. And that was it. That was it for me. And what, what was it about NASCAR? I, in general, I... I am fascinated by ordinary people accomplishing extraordinary things. Uh, a big passion of mine, obviously, is NASCAR. So, you know, there's nothing more intriguing to me than somebody strapping into a race car and going 200 miles an hour against 40 other cars. Uh, there's nothing more intriguing to me than somebody climbing to the top of a 363 foot tall launch vehicle which is a which is essentially a bomb and saying light the fuse yeah um 
doing what you did once upon a time, flying fighter pilots. You know, that, that to me, how does somebody do that? How do they have that kind of control over that kind of uh, equipment? Uh, so that's extraordinary. Uh, and, you know, and basically any, any walk, any, any journey like that, Mount Everest, what does it take to climb Mount Everest? Because I certainly don't have it. Uh, so that's what first got me into NASCAR. Uh, the, the technology is, is above my head. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not an engineer, but it's the people for me who, who are really and truly the story. And, um, that's certainly been the case in NASCAR. That's been the case in NASA. Um, and that's how it all started. So the people, that's a, you, your focus is the people, right? Like who make it happen. Right. So, the, you know, when we met, gosh, Coca-Cola 600 last year, uh-huh. really cool. One thing, that was my first full up NASCAR experience. And I was lucky enough to be a guest of two Medal of Honor recipients at the Coca-Cola 600. Right. And just being in a room with those guys is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just awesome, but you know, good people know good people. So we were hanging out at over at Bill Ryan's place, having some barbecue and some homemade whiskey, which is awesome. <laughs> and the thing that we were BSing at the table, we're sitting there bullshitting, and you said when we started talking NASA stuff, and we'll we'll connect to this here a little bit further on, but there was a quote you said that hit me like a ton of bricks when it comes to the guys we're going to talk about shortly about mission control. So those people was that no one told them it couldn't be done. Right. So the the thought of we can't do this or it's impossible right. never even crossed their mind. And this was in night this is late fifties, early sixties, that type of timeline. So a very different era. So we'll connect to that. But one thing I know is about hanging out with the NASCAR folks. I mean this is full time I'm surrounded by NASCAR's, you know, heavy hitters. Well, one, I was impressed with, you know, there's a lot of beer. And <laughs> I was impressed with how early they crack a beer. You know, the race on Sunday started at it's an afternoon or almost evening race. And we're walking around at 9 o'clock in the morning, man. And there's beer everywhere. I was like, dude, these people well, are machines. It was awesome. Well. You know, take a nap, have a few beers, take a nap, and then get after it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the hospitality I experienced right. from the NASCAR community was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, family style. Yeah. Like an Italian grandmother, you show up for dinner and you're, you're VIP. They right. took such good care of us. Really, really cool. So that was something uh, that I took away from that experience. But getting back to the, the kind of the quote, no one said it couldn't be done. No one told us it couldn't be done. And the attitude, I was like, damn, I got to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Which kind of stuck with me. So we'll get to that here shortly. But so that was kind of the NASCAR passion. When did the NASA light bulb go off for you? I I have always been again, I have always been intrigued uh by the space flight program. Uh I can remember watching one of the lunar uh one of the later lunar landings with my mom. My dad was actually in Vietnam at the time. And I, I do not know what mission it was. I can probably kind of guess being you know, the age I was and uh, when the later lunar lunar landings were and everything. But I don't know that I could, I I don't know that I could quite grasp at that time that they were actually walking on the moon, but I did know that they were in cool spacesuits and I I did grasp that they were somewhere far away. 
but the, I think the thing that really made it for me is every other word that they seem that they said seemed to be Houston. <laughs> and so in my four or five year old mind, however old I was at the time, they were talking to me. And that was a that was a connection, a very real connection with something very cool that was going on. And as a result, I've been I've I've loved the space program ever since. Um, I, of course, I got away from it and didn't follow it quite as closely uh, during high school. You know, girls and you know stuff like that. Yeah, away. fun fun distractions. And, and, and at the time, uh, of course, I was a big baseball fan. But I can remember very vividly where I was when the Challenger accident took place. Um, I was eating lunch with my mom, and then we went into a, a, a Sam's Club, and every TV in the place was on that accident. And I can remember it. Like, I mean, just talking about it now gives me chills. But every every TV in that place was showing that 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 mushroom cloud, and I'll, I'll never forget that. But then, what got me involved in it? Uh, to the extent that I that I have been now or that I am now, um, John Glenn flew again in nineteen ninety, I want to say ninety eight, late nineties, whenever it was. Of course, John was one of uh, NASA's first Mercury astronauts. He was the first American to uh, orbit the Earth, and so that was that was in the news twenty four seven. And then also about that same time, I think a couple of years before the movie Apollo 13 came out and uh, that reignited my passion. And I am not the kind who can just be interested in something. I, I can't just read about it and then set the book down. I have to be the one to write the book. I so you're to, all or nothing. Oh yeah. I have to jump into the deep end of the pool and immerse myself and, you know, um, it, to uh, to a very real extent, become obsessed. Um, you know, w- within days, uh, you know, within no time, I was reading everything that I could about NASA. Uh, I was reading the biographies. There's a uh, one of the one of the best books ever written about the Apollo program was by a guy by the name of Andrew Chaikin. And he wrote a book about the Apollo program from the viewpoint of the astronauts. And it's just a fantastic work. And so reading that and, you know, the movie Apollo 13 and John Glenn flying again. That's cool. John Glenn, by the way, Marine Corps fighter pilot. Little plug there. Little fighter pilot plug. Not everybody can be Army. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's it's tough to get into. The standards are high. No. Uh, So that was your – you said, all right, so you got the NASA bug. Right. But getting the NASA bug, any kind of bug, and then writing a book about it, that's significant. Right. So what was the driving factor, kind of the inspiration behind this book? Because this book covers so much. The amount of research – you had to put into this is i mean well i actually uh i i had gotten out of nascar full time uh and was kind of doing freelance work basically anything that i could possibly write about to pay the bills and um i was on a website a, a space related website and uh on the message board uh, an editor posted that the the author of a book about the Apollo program had backed out. And so he needed people to 
uh, he was going to line up people up, not to write the whole book, but to take specific chapters. And, you know, this was a public forum, so it was open to anybody. And the responses that he got, a lot of the responses that he got were from people that didn't have a lot of experience, a lot of journalism experience. And so of the people who responded to that post, I was the most experienced. So I got the the chapter on Apollo 11, and I really didn't want it because – So hang on. So – what happened on Apollo 11? Because that's not just a, one of the random Apollo missions. Yeah. Something significant happened on that one. Well, that was the first lunar landing. Yeah, so. That was the first crewed lunar landing, and I didn't want it because it was a story that had been told over and over and over and over and over again. And so I really didn't know that I could uncover anything original. Got it. Or fresh. And so basically what I did is I, I, I did accept it. But I wrote it from the perspective of the worldwide attention that was paid to the flight. Uh, Because you can really make the case that that was it and Apollo 8 uh, just the year before uh, were the first worldwide media events. Uh, Literally hundreds of millions of people around the world watched Apollo 8 and then, of course, watched Apollo 11. And uh, so I got to interview people. I got to interview one one uh, gentleman who was a POW in Vietnam uh, at the time. And he actually learned about the, the, the landing when he got a letter from home. And the stamp on the letter was the first man on the moon. Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. That's heavy. Um, I interviewed people who were on the ground in Vietnam uh, as, you know, grunts. I interviewed my dad. Uh, We were actually in Japan at the time, and I actually interviewed my dad three weeks to the day before he passed away with cancer. And so um, I talked to another guy who was behind the Iron Curtain at the time, uh, lived behind the Iron Curtain, I believe, in Czechoslovakia. And so that's, that's kind of the tack that I took with it. That led to a book about the space shuttle, uh, that was 180,000 words, by far the biggest thing I've ever written. But I, again, I was really intimidated by the, the technology and uh, used a lot of quotes. And so it kind of reads more like a, an oral history than it does a, a straightforward you know, narrative. While I was working on that book, I got to go to Houston, and a friend of mine, uh, one of the flight directors, Milt Heflin, uh, who eventually served as my co-author on Go Flight? Uh, he took me on a tour at Johnson Space Center. So you got to go see Mission Control. Well, I'm getting to that. Hold okay. on. Well, I got man, to, you, Marine. I know. I'm getting hey, excited. Hold on, man. Hold on. <laughs> hold on. Hold on, Marine. <laughs> he he took me to the to the neutral buoyancy laboratory, which is the really really big swimming pool where they train for the EVAs, where they train for the spacewalks. Well, yeah, that was really cool, but he wouldn't let me. Get, he wouldn't let me dive in. Yeah, so yeah, okay, it's a big swimming pool. It's cool, but it's a big swimming pool. Then he took me to the ro- robotics laboratory, and I got to shake hands with Robonaut, uh, and that was cool. But then I'm telling you, um, he took me into the Apollo era mission control room, and even now I've told this story a million times. And it's been 
10, 11 years ago now, I can still remember that overwhelming sense of history. And I took three steps inside the inside that door and I stopped cold my tracks and I had tears in my eyes. Literal tears. Because I did not feel worthy to be standing in that space. Because when you think about it, when Neil Armstrong announced Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle was landed. He was talking to that room. When he said, uh, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, he was talking to that room. Houston, we've had a problem on Apollo 13. They were talking to that room, and they were looking for help. And the last words that were ever spoken to and from the crew of Challenger were spoken to, to that room. And so I, I have felt that sense of history in a very few places, uh, Gettysburg, uh, Antietam, Dealey Plaza. But when I walked into that room, I was just hammered. I mean, just hammered upside the head with that sense of history. And I knew immediately in that moment that I wanted to do a, do a book about the people who'd worked there. Well, if I had actually written a book for every book I did ever had, I w it would be enough to fill 10 libraries. But about six months later, I got, an, I got an email from my series editor at the University of Nebraska Press, and he said, uh, I, you know, they're going to expand the series. Uh, do you have any book ideas? And I said, it's funny you should mention that. I like that. So let's hold off on that for just yeah. a second. I want to back up for a minute. Because you had just described, you know, what you felt when you walked into Mission Control. And I have that bookmarked specifically. <laughs> and I want to throw you on the spot here yeah, if you're cool yeah, with it. Because yeah. this was – I quoted this. I, I highlighted this. I'm like, this is – this is significant. Just the way you describe it. And I was going to see if you wouldn't mind reading it. <laughs> you know, on the spot here. Yeah. Where at? <laughs> just run. So it's got top to, uh, to there. Sure. I walked into the room completely unprepared for the reaction that was about to wash over me. There on the third floor of Building 30 at Johnson Space Center in Houston, I was transported back in time to the late 1960s and early 70s. As soon as I, as soon as I entered, I was hammered with an overwhelming sense of what had once taken place in this very room. Tears literally welled in my eyes, and I felt unworthy to stand on this hallowed ground. My friend Milt Heflin was a step or two ahead of me and entered before I did, and I was glad of that. I was embarrassed to be standing there like that, but I could not help it. There was the trench, and just above it a row of systems consoles. Just across the aisle from the ECOM console on the second row was the Capcom station, where Charlie Duke sat as he helped talk Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin down to the lunar surface. Upper row was the throne itself, the flight director's console. Chris Kraft, Gene Kranz, Glenn Lunny, Jerry Griffin, and Milt had all held court there once upon a time. Amazing. It was in those few moments when the concept for this book was born. Thanks for being a team That's player. That's pretty good I, stuff. I, right I know, there. right? Who wrote that, right? <laughs> <laughs> It'd have been me. I didn't. I totally just threw you under the bus. Didn't even talk about like. Oh hey, no problem. No, so I, this is your interview. No, this is. Uh, this is I, I'm like, if I read it, why would I read it if I got the author here? Yeah. You, you know. Yeah. So, 
So that that was the inception for the book. But then it kind of worked out where you get a random phone call saying, hey, you got any book ideas? Then what happened? Um, It was actually the easiest pitch that I had ever made. Uh, It sailed through. There was was never any conversation about if it was going to happen, but how and when. Um, And uh, spent the next, I'd say probably 18 months, uh, you know, starting to interview people getting to know people and it was it was a far different thing than the experience of the shuttle book had been uh because a lot of in a lot of cases in most cases the astronauts i talked to for the shuttle book had already been able to tell their stories and so i I don't want to say that it was you know just business as usual for them but they had they essentially you know been the public eye and they told their stories but the people I talked to for Mission Control had not. And it was very obvious that, that a lot of them took this as their opportunity to tell their stories. And it's a far better book, in my opinion, than, than my space shuttle book. Uh, I, I certainly think that the, the, the participants uh, have taken more of an ownership in it. Um, I mean, there's one flight controller in particular I mean, he's helped put my kids through college uh, by buying so many copies of it and giving and giving them away as gifts and and all that kind of thing. Uh, but I I mean I had people I had people who were then in their early 80s crawling through their attics looking for mission reports. Uh, one of the former flight controllers actually you know answered some questions at his wife's bedside. She had had uh, surgery. So he was at his wife's uh, hospital bedside. Uh, one guy in particular said, you know, there's not a lot out there about me. So he sat down and he wrote like a five-page summary of his career and, you know, and, and told some of the stories, you know, that I, that I should probably ask about. And so it, it, became, it became a journey in which I felt responsible for telling their stories because, you know, of the people that I interviewed for that book, I could probably sit here and name just off the top of my head, at least 10 that have passed away, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, of a, of a strange position, position to be in. But a lot of my friends are very elderly now. Right. And so I, I took it as a personal responsibility to be the caretaker of those stories and to tell those stories. Yeah. So about you have a chapter, and I think it's chapter one. Yeah, it's titled "Who Did What." <laughs> a lot of acronyms. Yeah, but it really there's one part that I highlighted, and you know I write my little notes on the page. It says who they are, and it's just a little paragraph. You talk about kind of the the general context of one historically when they were born, things like that. What was going on in the world? So. Most of the people who worked here during the Gemini and Apollo eras were born just as the country was coming out of the depths of the Great Depression, only to find itself embroiled in the even greater agony of World War II. They were all from small-town America. One of their hometowns, some of their hometowns, no longer exist, and a good many were the first in their families to graduate from college. And in fact, college had not been all that long ago. Their average age was in their mid to late 20s, and there they were, helping to land people on the surface of the moon. 
that's significant. Yes. Sir. When I was in my mid twenties, I was not helping land people on the moon. I was nothing even close to that, but that was the people you're telling their stories and the attitude of those people and the magnitude of what they were trying to accomplish at the time. I don't know how you would compare that and put it in understandable terms to, you know, modern day. The closest I can think of is putting people on Mars, you know, rewind literally 60 years ago. And the equivalent of that is happening with a technology that is not even close to what we have today. Yeah. But the key point that I noticed from the book was the attitude of the people and the way they kind of banded together. Right. I thought it was awesome. And we'll, we'll get into that. All right. So you found it was, it was your responsibility to kind of tell their stories and that type of thing. You know, these people. Let's talk about a few of the people. There's so many of them in the book that there's too many to highlight. So go buy, go flight. It's a great book. You'll hear about all these people. It's absolutely worth it. Hell to read. You can knock it out in one day. But there were a few that I just highlighted that I thought were major players and also had some, there's some characters and some fun associated <laughs> with it. So the first one, John Llewellyn. Is that how you say it? Llewellyn. John Llewellyn. Yeah. What was he like? You just say that because he was a Marine. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was a little bit biased, a little bit. Well, I did. One thing I noticed, yeah. no kidding. I didn't know Gene Kranz, fighter pilot. Right. Uh, um, Ken Mattingly, fighter pilot. Right. I mean, and it makes sense when, but they Jerry were all. Jerry Griffin, uh, he was not a pilot. He was a, a rear, rear uh, backseat yep. uh, radar intercept. All these guys. Yeah. I mean, it was World, World War II vets, Korea vets. I mean, Vietnam is going on, but when it first started in the early 60s, yeah. it hadn't really kicked off yet. So all these guys are veterans of... Well, not all. Uh, I, I think I think the guys who had served in the military were were the exceptions rather than the rule. Uh, John, um, he, he passed away about, I want to say, three months before I, I stepped foot in the moker for the first time, the mission control room. And um, he w- he's the one person that had already passed away that I really would have liked to have talked to. Uh, but so many people had so many memories of him that it was almost like, like I did have the chance to talk to him. Um, he enlisted. Uh, he ran away from home. Uh, it, it, as, a, as a child, he served on a, a tramp steamer and had some experiences there, of course. Uh, he joined the Marines and was involved in the the, the landing in Incheon. Uh, and then he was also a part of the, the Battle of the Chosin Reservoir, which is one of the most vicious battles that has ever been fought on, on you know, ever been fought, period. And, and John was right in the middle of it. Um, he can rem- he he his oral histories that he did before he passed talked about seeing all the Chinese at the bottom of a hill and them all blowing horns and trumpets and and that kind of thing and uh, he was in a foxhole one night and heard a a, a click and it was a, a Chinese soldier uh, who had tried to fire on him and it misfired and John killed him and spent the rest of the night in that foxhole. And, uh, you know, that's not the kind of thing that anybody should have to go through. 
uh, but those who do, you know, obviously they they can and more often than not do bear the scars. And John lived with those scars and uh, suffered a lot from PTSD, and and that was borne out in a lot of different situations. But the thing that I really respected about John was he was somehow able to put all that aside and sit a console in mission control with the best of them. He was as he was as serious about his work as anybody was, and despite what he'd gone through and experienced, it it you know he he did his job admirably. And there is there's nobody that I talked to about him who had an unkind thing to say about him professionally. Now, personally, <laughs> he he was a handful. I, I So there's uh, a little part about yeah, that I'd like to just yeah. read real quick. This is uh, speaking of John Llewellyn. So to many, John Llewellyn was a larger-than-life force of nature. He was known to down his fair share of drinks. He could be profane. He spawned countless stories, a good many of which were true. Some were relatively tame. He could sometimes get the numbers. This I thought was pretty funny. He could sometimes get the numbers out of order during countdown to retrofire for re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. 10, 9, 7, 6, 8, 4, 5, 3, 2, 1. So, okay. You know, no big deal. Basic right. counting. Um, but I also, some of his exploits. Right. Uh, you know, the paragraph and the part of the pages you wrote about his time in Korea. You know hand-to-hand combat, killing Chinese soldier, and then staying in the foxhole and I, with Chinese overrunning their position. So he likely hid under dead bodies yeah. to keep from getting captured. Right. So, but his, his comedic exploits, I would say, I like this one with Gus Grissom. That was the kind of thing, though, that could have happened to anyone. What others might not have done was challenge astronaut Virgil I. Gus Grissom to a drag race on the beach. Grissom in a gleaming new Corvette and Llewellyn and an old official use only Plymouth. Afterward, Llewellyn probably drove his losing car straight into the surf. When the Soviet Union established some new high band ground in the space race, it was John Llewellyn who came banging on the door of Glenn Lunny, Glenn Lunny's home early in the morning, demanding that the both of them go into work right then and there to do something about it. Legend also has it that while in Australia for work at a tracking station during the Gemini program, Llewellyn was caught trying to sneak into his his locked motel room. When told by the manager that if he did not like the rules, that he could just buy the motel, Llewellyn apparently responded by doing just that. Well, so it sounds like a character. Yeah, there's also the story about how he um, was late for work one day and somebody had taken his parking spot or there were no parking spots available so he parked his uh, car on the steps of the Mission Control Center and got his uh, parking pass revoked. And John was not deterred. Uh, he was undeterred and uh, brought his horse trailer, parked it across the street from the Space Center, and rode his horse to work <laughs> the next day. So that's John Llewellyn. And again, I'm telling you, I, I would so love to have met him, talked to him. Uh, I'm friends with his daughter on Facebook, and, you know, it, it, it's just kind of cool. Uh, but, again, those are the kind of stories that I missed out on being able to tell because I wasn't able. Because if those are the stories that we know yeah, that have been passed down to time, what other stories weren't told? 
you know, so that's another reason why the book was so important. I wanted to, to record those stories before they were lost forever. Got it. There's, those are the kind of guys, you know, like you get a chance to buy them a beer and you just listen. Yeah. Hey, this round's on me and you just listen. And those are the, I mean, like hanging out with Bob Patterson and Joe Munn at the NASCAR race last year, Medal of Honor recipients. Yeah. I just, dude, you guys just start talking. I'll bring the beers. Yeah. I'm just going to listen. Yeah. I, I'm invisible. You know, awesome time. So there are a couple other personalities that I thought among many were just key. Another was Chris Kraft. Now he's iconic in NASA. Uh, he's the godfather. Godfather. Okay. He he was he created Mission Control, and um, I'm not sure what the what the flow chart would have been, but Chris would have been somewhere near God on the on the flow chart of, of job responsibilities. Uh, he created it, but he led, and he evidently was one of the greatest leaders mankind has ever known because the people who worked with him respect him almost 100%. Now, of course, you're going to have some people that you know don't take to uh, positions of authority very well, but Chris led with iron hand, but he was also very... Um, he was also a very good teacher, a very good leader. Um, one of the most important parts of becoming a flight controller were the simulations. The The simulations were, in in most cases, far worse than actual flight was, with the, the exceptions of the Apollo 12 launch and the, the entire flight of Apollo 13. So you could make a mistake in a training session, and if you owned up to it, and explained why it happened, how it happened, and how you were going to, how you planned to correct it. Then, Chris, you know, Doctor Kraft was on board with that. If you tried to BS your way out of it and blow it off, or you know, uh, uh, you know, not take it seriously, that's when you didn't last very long. So uh, taking ownership of those mistakes, taking ownership of of, uh, of the mistakes, but more importantly, learning from them. Uh, you, you didn't make you didn't make mistakes. You didn't continue to make serious mistakes with Chris Kraft in charge. You you were you were out the the closest door. Uh, but that's just the way it had to be because you know at that time NASA was hiring so fast that there had to be some kind of uh, you know sifting process. And uh, those guys were put through the ringer. On, on those consoles, and uh, by and large, they were they were the they were the best of that generation. So that was a. There's a lot of little excerpts about the culture that was right. created, and I think the lead of the flight, the mission controllers. So the flight director is he's on the throne. Right. He senior dude. He trumps everything. Mm -hmm. Any final decision. Yeah. He makes okay. Uh, the president of the United States could not overrule the flight director. Got it. That about how, sums it up. That's how big that is. So a little bit – so Ed Fendel wrote a little bit about uh, one of his quotes about the culture of the debrief. And the debrief was often done usually at a bar. You know, they'd go get some beers and – Well, if Ed was involved, it was. Is that <laughs> so, Yeah, Ed, I said it and I'm not uh, taking it back. Either. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this is from Ed Fendel. So 
And what did Ed do? What was his role? Just so I can uh, add some context. He was in charge. Uh, he was in charge of of communications during the Apollo program. Okay, got it. So this is from Ed, and it talks about the quote unquote debrief. Everybody was your friend, and you were everybody else's friend. Fendel continued. Everybody worked together, and when you screwed up, everybody told you that you screwed up. Official post-simulation debriefings were an important part of the learning process, but it was post-mission parties at the Hofbrau Garden German Village restaurant in Dickinson, Texas, when about, about 10 miles from the mission uh, MSC, what does that stand for? Manned Spacecraft Center. For the Manned Spacecraft Center campus, where flight controllers really got down to business. The only people who went to the party were the flight controllers and the astronauts. No one else, Fendel began, as if warming up to the story. There was no, I'm bringing my friend or my girlfriend. You went down there, you drank beer, and everybody talked about you, and they talked about all the shit you did wrong. <laughs> everybody listened and heard what somebody st- and heard when somebody stood up there and said, that damn Fendel did the following thing, and that was the dumbest son of a bitching thing in the world, blah, 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 blah. And this, this was the most important part. You stood there and you took it or you packed up and you went home. And I wrote down thick skin or bust next to it where you had to be able to take that tough debriefing, that tough constructive feedback. And if you couldn't, you weren't going to last. Right. Because what was on the line here? You know, dudes are going into outer space. There were literally lives on the line. Uh, You know, it was the the flight controller's responsibility – was uh, first and foremost uh, the lives of the crew, uh, mission safety, and then the mission itself. like it. And just for fun, there's one more part. This, I think this highlights Ed Fendel's personality. Work became a way of life for Fendel. He would never even know it, or anyone else for that matter, if they got paid overtime, which nobody really cared much about anyway. That's not to say, though, that he was all work all the time. One day, this is coming from Ed Fendel, one day I picked up this chick and we spent the night, he remembered. The morning after, their conversation went something like this. She says, where are you going? Ed responds, I'm going to work. Fendel's date was incredulous. You're what? Today's Saturday. What am I, I going to do? And this is what it was like to be around Ed Fendel back in the day because his response was so classically him. Well, you can either stay here or you can get your ass up, go home. And I'll call you later. You understand what I'm saying? I'm going to work. I write mission rules on Saturday mornings. <laughs> yep. That's my buddy. Straight shooter. Yes, sir. Straight shooter. Yeah. And that's absolutely how Ed talks. He is he is so matter of fact and he is so direct that you, you have to learn how to talk to him. Uh, you know, you just in regular conversation sometimes you feel like he's putting you on the spot. But underneath that really gruff exterior, even all these years later, he has a heart of gold. He is 91 now, 91, 92 now, uh, and he still works for Habitat for Humanity. He still, he, he doesn't work in the office. He works on the work site. He's still getting after it at 91. Ned oh, yeah. nice. is one of my favorite people ever. All right, so one big, one more big name we'll talk about, and this is just scratching the surface of the amount of personalities and people who contributed here. But essentially, time and you know that type of thing. We'll we'll talk about one more person and then get into um, the politics at the time. Gene Kranz. So, 
right? Ding. Ding. <laughs> well, that, no. That's Gene on line one. Gene on line Jane's one. That's perfect timing. Uh, <laughs> so Gene Kranz. Yes. And he was played, obviously, famously by Ed Harris in Apollo 13, but he was a much bigger deal well before Apollo 13, and he was a major contributor leading up to that. Right. So, um, Well, first of all, Ed – well, Gene – was not the only flight director. And I think that's really important to, to understand, uh, especially when it comes to, to that era. Gene was obviously a giant uh, because he, he worked two of the most significant shifts in, in uh, Apollo history. He was on console as the flight director when uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Uh, so that was obviously high profile. And then he was actually the one on console when the Apollo 13 accident took place. Um, Gene has this just stunning command of a room. So he's, like a command presence? Yeah. He, he's in charge. Um, but that's also not to say that other flight directors weren't. They just did their responsibilities differently than Gene did. Um, there was, there was, I don't want to say a rivalry, but there was a, a very healthy sense of, of, I don't want to say competition either. Gene Kranz and Glenn Lunny, they were the two cowboys in the room. Um, and, Glenn and and Gene would tell you, Glenn was the was the smartest person that he ever worked with, and also he might have, he might very well have been the smartest person ever to work in that room ever even to did it to this day, and so I I think there was probably when it comes to Gene there was probably a a team Gene and a team G, uh, Glenn in the Mission Control Center. Um, Gene again just has a command of the room. Uh, you can listen to the uh, lunar landing on Apollo Eleven, and he he's he's in charge of that room. And you can actually hear when uh, Neil Armstrong announced that they were on the lunar surface. You can uh, actually hear when when uh, Gene is talking. You can hear the cheers in the room. And Gene ain't having it. He said, keep the chatter down in this room. Because even in that moment, he was, he was laser focused on the job at hand. When Apollo 13 uh, took place, that room just went bonkers. Because every, every, every position in that room basically had some sort of issue that they were dealing with. And he at one point, you know, just said, hey, take a breath and don't make this worse by guessing. Do your job, focus on the job, focus on your data, and make things right. But I think it's, I, I do think it's very important to also understand that there were other flight directors who were, Every bit is capable, and I, you know, I, I think that's probably the 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 movie effect there. Uh, you know, everybody's seen Apollo thirteen, 
but unfortunately, not everybody's ready to go fly it yet. So well, hopefully, after this podcast, <laughs> my my three friends will buy your book. Yeah, and, yeah you know, absolutely, so, absolutely. So the leadership style there was there was a reason certain people at least caught my attention more so than others was the 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 leadership lessons that they the leadership I guess style uh, the application of leadership that they had. And Gene Kranz, like that part, the Apollo 13 part, when people are freaking out and he's like, hey, 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 yeah. stop, breathe, that kind of thing. Right. I'd like to talk about that in a little while. But this was cool I t- I, from the book that you wrote about his how he worked with his people. So another skill that Kranz worked to develop was the ability to listen to his troops like a quarterback running the two-minute drill. The flight director's only consumable, he knew, was time. And under no circumstance could any controller afford to run out the clock. Not only would Kranz listen to what the controllers were telling him, he would listen to the tone of their voice, the inflection of how they were saying it, and as time went on, trust developed. There were many times, Kranz says, when the controllers would take a direction and wouldn't even bother to tell me because they had confidence I would support them, Kranz said. This is, I think, very critical when you're in a time-critical situation. It was a question of getting to know the people and more so having having an intense feeling for the challenges they had when they were trying to give you answers. So connecting with your people. And it sounds like yeah. he, he he was talented at that. He was good at that. Yes, he was he was very good at that. And as I said in the book, uh there there are people who work for Gene who get very emotional talking about him. Because of that, um, that sense of leadership and that leadership style. Uh, one gentleman in particular, he remembered um, right before powered descent began on Apollo 11, and they they began the phase where they were actually going down to the lunar surface. Gene actually got on the flight director's loop and, and talked to the troops, and he said, "Whatever happens here today, I've got your back." Yes, and that, that whether whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, I, I I will stand behind you. And you know uh, the the person uh, I believe it was Jack Knight um, talking about that. He actually got emotional talking about it. And uh, he was he was Jack was not the only person to get emotional talking about Gene. Uh, but just again, Glenn Lunny, when the Apollo thirteen uh, accident took place. I think Gene's team was about an hour from shift handover. It was about an hour before they were, you know, quitting work for the night, scheduled to quit work for the night. And Glenn Lunny came on. Well, while they were trying to figure out the problem for that hour, that room was in chaos. Um, And, you know, they were trying to figure out what was going on. And, again, I mean, they weren't even sure if it was instrumentation you know, uh, there was there was one thought that nothing had happened. It was just, uh, you know, the instruments reading incorrectly or whatever. And so they were going back and forth about that. And Glenn Lunny's team came on. And Glenn, a lot of people say that he restored order. And he said, okay, you do this, you do that, you do this. And then also John Aaron came on board. He wasn't scheduled to be on Glenn's shift. Uh, he was actually taking a shower. And his, uh, um, his section leader called to get him into the control center. 
and, and, and uh, John was in charge of the, the area of the spacecraft that had been infected, uh, affected by the explosion. And John came in. He sat down next to the ECOM who was on, uh, uh, on duty at that time. And he looked at the screen and he said, okay, we need to shut the spacecraft down. That's a... And, you know, John, you asked basically anybody who worked in the control center at that time, and almost to a person, they'll say that John was the most capable. John Aaron. John Aaron. John Aaron. He's the, he's the next person. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to dig too much into the Apollo 13 because that that is a conversation in itself. There's so many cool lessons there and... Man, just really cool stories. So this was one more thing I wanted to just cover on the culture that they had built via, I think, the leadership. So Chris Kraft, Gene Kranz, John Aaron, uh, you know, your your pioneers, John, John Llewellyn, those kind of guys, that they built a culture of, I think, resiliency. And also, I've noticed just in my time in the Marine Corps and in the military in general, with those challenging times, you don't exist unless you have a sense of humor which is a big part of it. So uh, this was a point with regards to the culture. It was important to have a good sense of humor because if they did not, the unofficial debriefs at some local watering hole could sometimes get downright wicked. Those who knew what was good for them laughed it off when they went down the wrong path in training. But at the same time, they also made a mental note to never, ever do it again. So humor, but also learning at the same time. Awesome. Well, on that note, let's transition to, we've talked a little bit about, actually, backing up. I would like to talk a little bit about John Aaron. So he was the one, you know, when you, you talk about godfathers, the names that popped in my head were Chris Kraft, John Aaron, Gene Kranz. They're mentioned significantly in the book, but this John Aaron specifically where he was, he was aware and had knowledge of pretty much all the systems, right? right. So he was very, very intelligent, technically, right. great leadership style. And if you want to just to highlight his kind of leadership style, because that's part of the moral is pulling out leadership lessons. When Apollo 13 happens, what he does, and just a little bit about John Aaron. Well, John Aaron, he he is the he is the prototypical flight director for or flight controller for that period. Uh, he grew up the son of a sharecropper. Uh, and a Methodist minister. Uh, they bounced around from this town to that, you know, trying to make ends meet. Uh, he went to work uh, as, or he went to college to become a school teacher because that was always the most stable, solid job that anybody could have when he was growing up. Nobody was going to fire the teacher at that during that time. Uh, but he did discover an aptitude for engineering. And he got out of he got out of college uh, at a little college in Oklahoma, and uh, went to work for NASA, thinking that he was just going to work there long enough to buy a bunch of cattle, uh, to to uh, start the ranch that he wanted to to uh, build. And when he when he got to Houston, uh, it was unlike the weather was unlike anything he'd ever experienced. It was hot, humid mosquitoes the whole nine yards uh, and very nearly quit uh but his parents told him uh you don't need to come home to help us you need to go on and live your life and his wife cheryl also said we're not going anywhere and so he stayed at nasa and he uh, like i said he became 
what's widely considered to be the most capable flight controller ever. He was his his biggest claim to fame is the launch of Apollo 12. And 36 seconds after the Saturn V vehicle uh, took off, uh, launched, they were stu- struck by lightning. And then a few seconds later, they were struck again. So within 50 seconds, all hail broke loose at his console. And it was his... That was his position. That was, that was his... The, the systems that had, had been affected by the lightning were his systems. He lost data, completely lost data. And he had been in on a simulation about a year before and had seen the same pattern, the same pattern of numbers on his screen. And he thought to himself, and he asked his backroom guy, uh, Jim Kelly, uh, if, if that was in fact the, the case. And he said, how about trying SCE to AUX? What's that mean? Uh, signal conditioning equipment to auxiliary. It was a, a very obscure switch on the uh, the lower right side of the spacecraft. Um, the The flight director Jerry Griffin did not know what it was. the The Capcom astronaut communicator did not know what it was. So, real quick, this the this this happens, but. A while ago, he saw something kind of an a anomaly year. happen. A, a year. year. So a year prior, this year. anomaly happens. Right. And he, he, the way you write in the book is phenomenal how you break it down in detail. But yeah. he knew that that was something different right. they hadn't seen before. Right. This was unique and it couldn't be explained. Right. And he remembered and didn't he, he made a note card, like a little cheat sheet of what he saw. And it was something that couldn't be explained. Yeah. And he kept it. Well, he didn't have that cheat sheet on him. Oh, he didn't. He had it filed right, right between his ears. Okay, so that, but yeah. that cheat sheet, so that random yeah. anomaly that happens yeah. a year before, plays yeah. a big part of what happens next. Right. Um, essentially, essentially, what happened was it, it knocked the electrical system offline. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the trajectory. Uh, the you know the spacecraft was still headed the direction that it needed to go, but. The, the mission control people didn't have any data on their screen, so they couldn't tell where it was headed. And um, John recognized the pattern of, of numbers that were on his screen and essentially switching uh, signal conditioning equipment to auxiliary, auxiliary, that brought that data back online. And so he said, SCE to aux. Jerry Griffin, the flight director, didn't know what it was. Jerry Carr, the, the astronaut capsule communicator, didn't know what it was. Pete Conrad, the commander of the spacecraft, didn't know what it was. He actually said, NCE to auxiliary, what the hell is that? And Alan Bean, who is the lunar module pilot and who is seated closest to that switch, said, you know, I, I know what it is. And he reached over and flipped it, and within seconds, the data was back. So that Boom. all connected to what happened a year prior. Yes, sir. Yeah. And John Aaron had it stuck in his brain. Yeah. He remembered that event a huh. year ago when, when and, the whole lightning strikes and happened. And literally, there's no – that moment is literally the definition of being in the hot seat because launch is obviously the most dynamic 
part of a flight. I mean, uh, Pete Conrad, Dick Gordon, and Alan Bean, they were sitting on top of a a, a 363-foot-tall bomb, and that bomb was in the process of going off. And their lives were literally on the line. And John Aaron, I don't, I don't want to overstate it and say that he saved their lives because, again, the trajectory was going well. The engines were working well. They, you know, mission control just didn't know where it was. You know, they didn't know what the status of the spacecraft was because all that had been knocked offline. And so, uh, by by knowing, by being that prepared, John Aaron saved that mission. Period. Saved that mission, and it went on to be essentially the most problem-free flight of the program. And it was because of what happened a year before and what right. they learned in the training. Yeah, yeah. And John Aaron, I, I you know, John Aaron went into man- management after Apollo, and he, you know, held several several different positions. But at that time, he was not in necessarily in a position of leadership. He was not the the uh, he he was not the head of the the command and service module section. Uh, he was just very, very very good at his job well we're going to get into more specifics about his leadership style when we talk apollo 13 stuff because he his initial what he does when he walks into the room Mm -hmm. to me was just absolutely phenomenal and is such an indicator of somebody who's aware of the gravity of the situation and knows the order of decisions and process that needs to happen in order for it to be solved you know, keyword being solved. And we'll talk about that one. But let's talk a little bit about the politics at the time. So this is post-World War II, Mm post-Korea. The space race uh, is not in full swing, but the competitive nature, the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union is in full swing. And Sputnik, 1957, I believe. I'm, I'm Trying to throw these numbers. October four. October. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. So, so I got the I got the year yeah. right. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. We'll call yeah. it a win. So Sputnik happens, and that kind of triggers the U.S. role in the space race. How did that kind of unfold in in the late fifties? Well, obviously, post World War II, the Soviet Union became the the new threat uh, to the United States and you know the democracy and and everything, and so. The space race became a a battleground in the Cold War that was very important. Nobody was, you know, there were no, you know, there were there was no combat taking place uh, in, in the space race, but it was literally a a, a battle for the hearts and mind of the people. Um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the naysayers called the space race um, a little bit of a PR stunt. But essentially, it's what's next. Yeah. It, it, it is in mankind's, it's in humankind's nature to explore. And so that's what the space race to me, or that's what the space program to me is all about. But without the Soviet Union... We we would never have walked on the moon. We we wouldn't have walked on the moon to this day. And so the 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 astronauts were the frontline soldiers. 
uh, in the space race and the, the mission control people were in the rear with the gear, uh, directing it all. So the, the politics of the time, and yeah, I'll go ahead and say this, what NASA was able to accomplish in the late 1960s as the United States was in the process of coming apart at the seams, it's proof of what a nation can do when it sets its priorities to that. Um, when you consider in 1961, May of 1961, John F. Kennedy stood before Congress and said that, you know, we're going to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth before the end of this decade. When President Kennedy said that, the United States had less than 15 minutes of spaceflight experience. Less th- they had never orbited the Earth, ever. And so when President Kennedy said that, the technology to go to the moon did not exist. The people had not been hired to go to the moon. But he stood before Congress and said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade. And that started this, this effort this just mammoth effort that landed a man on the moon. And if we can, if we can land a, a, a man on the moon in eight years with the right people in place, what can we not accomplish? Right. That's a, le- that's a lesson for today. And you, you, you've kind of struck a nerve. It's, it, you know, if we would just, if we would, if we would just shut up, Everybody's talking. Nobody's listening today. Different time. Different. uh, So I think one thing that you mentioned about, so had the Soviet Union not existed, if there wasn't that Cold War competition, we have a competitive spirit here in the U.S. Right. You know, that type of thing. I'd like to just read what you wrote about President Kennedy's speech. On 25 May 1961, President John F. Kennedy stood before a joint session of Congress and uttered the 31 most important words in NASA's history. First, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. No single sentence has ever moved the agency further and faster. There was no fuzz on the mandate, no chance of misunderstanding its meaning. The goal of going to the moon was clear and concise with a firm deadline front and center. Kennedy had just told NASA where to go and when to get there, but there was a catch. There was no mention of how it was going to get done. That was the biggest challenge of all, and for somebody else to figure out. There would most likely have to be some sort of rendezvous involved, or maybe it would just be a a direct shot to the moon. Rendezvous might take place either in Earth's orbit or around the moon. Important pieces of the technological puzzle that nobody yet realizes were ne- that were needed were far from being invented. The sum total of the nation's experience in human spacecraft was a single 15-minute suborbital hop by Alan Shepard flown just 20 days before, leaving it woefully behind the Soviet Union in the Cold War space race. None of that seemed to matter to the influx of NASA new hires heading to Houston, who seemed to share one trait in particular— they did not know it could not be done. Yeah. 
That's some good writing, man. Well, I, I, I was on my game. You were on your game. Okay. All right. No, but that is that is significant. Everyone's heard that speech via you know at some point, but there are tons of examples of the U.S. government tiptoeing around something. One foot in, one foot out. Hesitation. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should. Maybe she should. The Vietnam War, one big right. example. But this was an example of where they said, hey, NASA – Get it done. Right. Did they just give NASA like a blank check, the black Amex, and say, go get them? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it became a priority for a lot of people to get this, uh, to accomplish this feat. And, you know, there are those who who say that if Kennedy had not been assassinated, you know, the yeah, you know, some of the wheels might have come off, but I, th- I think once Kennedy was assassinated, and the country again started falling apart at the seams, and the the Soviet Union and communism became more of a uh, was seen as more of a threat, then yes, the, the the space race was on in full force, and if they didn't get a blank check, uh, it was something very close to it. Funding was not an issue. That's cool. Yeah, the way the, yeah. the part of the book where you talk about, you know, I even highlighted somewhere in here about Texas, about the actual city of Houston, which is really cool because they were all about support, you right. know, building roads. Yeah. Um, because there were multiple options for. All right. Yeah. So yeah. it was Virginia, Florida, Houston. Yeah. There, you know, were, there, there were several different uh, options, but due to a lot of factors and not the least of which was. Uh, Lyndon Johnson being in charge of the uh, <laughs> that I, was be, was was being in charge. Yeah, that didn't that didn't hurt. Uh, but Houston, you know, was was located on, a, on obviously on a waterway that was important. Uh, it it had access to industry, but where the space center was itself, um, I think it's what twenty five thirty miles outside of Houston proper. So it's south of Houston. Uh, downtown, uh, and where it was at the time, it was a it was a no man's land. It was it was home to cattle, uh, ranchers, and everything. And those had to be moved out, and NASA moved in. And eight years later, we were standing in the sea of tranquility. And that is where. Uh, that's where Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed. <laughs> So I was reading about that, and people – if you said Sea of Tranquility, people might oh, I recognize that for somewhere, yeah. but that's literally where they landed. Right. So we talked a little bit about the people, kind of the motivation, the climate at the time to get things going. And the order of NASA programs – and correct me here – was Gemini first? Mercury. Mercury. Right. Okay. So Mercury. can you cover Germany, Mercury, and Apollo and just what was happening? Because there, there was stuff going on that didn't have astronauts, but eventually it did. Okay. So, can you give us a summary of the Germany Mercury or Gemini? Gemini, yeah, yeah, Germany. Uh, well, um, Mercury was first. Okay, uh, the the Mercury Seven astronauts became you know immediate rock stars, uh, and, and essentially they were they were the the test dummies. Uh, they they were the ones who became the first to uh, number one prove that a that a human being could survive in space. Uh, because there are all kinds of theories, their eyeballs are going to pop, and you know, their innards will never be the same, and what space sickness is going to do, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but the the original Mercury astronauts, 
proved that we could live and more important more importantly work in space uh those those were single seat uh spacecraft uh so they were you know they were they were they were in charge they were fighter pilots uh and, and so that that became their new test vehicles then came the gemini program and um those were two-seater spacecraft and that was the program that essentially proved that you could work in space that was the program that proved that you could uh perform uh rendezvous and docking in space that was the program that proved that evas uh were were possible now what's an eva again uh, spacewalk spacewalk so you're just walking in outer space extravehicular activity eva when that program started i think the biggest concern was about rendezvous and docking how difficult that was because it was like i've heard it described as as standing on one side of a big building uh one person standing on one side of a big building another standing on the other side and throwing a golf ball over the building and trying to hit them hit each other uh and and so obviously that's a, a very difficult if not impossible task if you're not if you don't have very smart people involved that turned out to be not so big a problem as the extravehicular activity of the spacewalk because uh, the, the, the first spacewalk by Ed White on Gemini 4 was, was basically getting out of the hatch and floating around for a little while with a, with a gun, with, a, with a, a, essentially a rocket gun that, that could steer him around a little bit, and then he got back in. Was the... The most challenging part, the human element, how the human body would react, or was it the, the technology to? No, it was it was more control, because uh, more control of the body and how you were going to stay in place while you were working. Um, Gene Cernan was the next American to do an EVA, and he very nearly died because he got out and he had no handholds, no footholds. Uh, you know, in the vacuum of space, you. You know, you, you touch something and you immediately go the other way. And then, you know, no telling what axis, you know, whether, you know, pitch, roll, yaw, whatever. His his helmet fogged up. He couldn't see. And so he, lit- he literally saw by pressing his nose against the inside visor and trying to peek through that hole. So he couldn't see and he was walking around in outer space. Yeah. Okay. Around. Yeah, that's a rough um, go. And, and then you know how do you, how do you f- even find your way back to the hatch, much less get back in, uh, in a pressurized suit, uh, into a into a, a space that was about the size of a, the front seat of a, a vo- of a Volkswagen Beetle. So the risk, the challenging part, we said control. So keeping the astronaut keeping himself where he wanted to be. Right. Combating the space vacuum. Yeah the lack of gravity, all that stuff. Right. So if he pushes against the spacecraft yeah. and there's nothing keeping him from going in the opposite direction, he just keeps going. Right. Right? Forever. Yeah. Okay, got it. And, of course, he has he's tethered in, so he wasn't going to float away. But imagine floating uncontrolled in space attached to a tether that's essentially wrapping itself around you, you know, yeah, and they're uh, rotating. They're in orbit. Yeah. So they're actually traveling at thousands of miles an 17, hour. 17,500 miles an hour. Okay, so just so my, my visor fogs up. I'm going 17,500 miles an hour, <laughs> and there's no handholds or footholds. 
and you're approaching darkness. You're approaching the, the, the side farthest from the sun. So the dark side of the moon. Yeah. The far side of the moon. Far side of the moon. Far side. Jeez. Come on. And th- what year is this? Uh, I think Gene's EVA was 19. That was Gemini 9, I believe, which would have been 66. Gosh. 65, 66. Man. Yeah. That's gnarly. Yeah. So we've, at this point, and then Apollo is when it turns into start, it's manned more than one astronaut uh, and with the goal well, of getting to the moon. Yeah. Apollo was the program to, to take us to the moon once we got through uh, the Gemini program and, and worked all the, the kinks out on it and proved that we could work in space and do the EVAs and, and all that kind of thing. Then came Apollo, and that was, you know, it was it was full bore for a, a, a few months. Okay. So we're going to get into the Apollo stuff. So, so far, historically, a lot of learning is happening. Right. But the history of NASA is, it's got its ups and downs. And eventually they get their first real sobering moment where they have to deal with tragedy right. and how they react to it, which I think how they react to it is the biggest lesson among others. Right. We'll get into that here real quickly. So, to the book. Gemini's final hurdle had been cleared and with room to spare. Mission planners, flight controllers, flight directors, and astronauts alike were experienced and ready for the final push to the lunar surface. We just applied all the lessons we'd been learning all along, Glenn Lunny concluded. By the time we came out of Gemini, the experience had rippled through the multiple people with all the experience had rippled through multiple people with all of those jobs. They were pretty damn good at the stuff we had used when we went into the room. We went out of Gemini like gangbusters. We were ready to do Apollo. We were pretty confident in ourselves, maybe even pushing the envelope a little bit, that we would be able to handle anything that came up. Until the evening of 27 January 1967, Mission Control had in fact been able to handle everything that had been thrown its way. It took less than 15 seconds to shake that kind of supreme confidence to its very foundation. And that gets into Apollo 1. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I think in today's culture, we have become kind of desensitized to, to violence. Most of us have seen the Zapruder film, and we've seen the Kennedy assassination. Um, but you've seen it over and over and over again. And, of course, just watch the news today and you get desensitized to it but in in doing in writing this book i had the i i felt like it was a duty to listen to the 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 audio from the apollo one fire and it is the most terrible thing i've ever heard so what happened there um essentially a um a spark in the spacecraft ignited a fire and uh, it was it was over within I, I think what I said 15 seconds, 16 seconds, whatever it was, and uh, three astronauts perished, uh, died in that fire. Uh, Gus Grissom, who is one of NASA's uh, original seven Mercury astronauts, Ed White, who had done the the first American uh, spacewalk, and also Roger Chaffee, who was a rookie, he, he had never flown in space before. They they were they were trapped inside and uh the hatch was you know uh not necessarily inoperable but 
it was very difficult to open in a very in a in a you know uh, a pressurized vehicle. Uh, it was 100% oxygen, which you introduce a, a a spark into that, and it's just going to become a basically an instant inferno. And and just the sounds, just the sounds of listening to that. I, I don't think I'll ever forget that. And and honestly, I think just the sounds made it almost worse. You know, um, but in in doing the research for the book that that accident I don't want to say was necessary but it also forced NASA to step back and take a breath and look at the way that it was doing business and take some medicine for go fever uh, go fever was very real and I think at that go fever go fever go fever go fever Yes, go favor is get it done, get it done now, and to heck with the consequences. I, I, I think the engineers who who were there, I, I, they were smart enough to know that 100% oxygen was, you know, not, you know, it, they were smart enough to know that it was dangerous. But there was a very real push to get this done, and I think at that point it was more, a, it was more than just beating the Russians. I think it was just. The, the the ball had started rolling down the hill and the momentum couldn't be stopped. And the Apollo 1 fire created a, a, a pause. And it created a pause that made NASA take a look at the way that it was doing business. And it was putting uh, their, their astronauts in, in mortal danger. And so they they stepped back. They redesigned the spacecraft. Um, they they you know I don't know the the oxygen and and everything the mixtures and everything, but they they stepped back and and um, Apollo Seven became a, a a test flight of the redesigned vehicle in Earth orbit, and that flight went all but flawless, with the exception of a pretty bitchy crew. <laughs> Um, and that, without that fire, I don't know that we get to the moon by the end of the decade. Okay. That's a honest assessment. And I think, uh, pretty accurate. Yeah. A little bit of sobriety yeah. there. Yeah. So the event itself, I'd like to just pull a little bit from the book about when the actual event happened and what was going on in mission control. Right. So to geographically paint the picture, this is happening so the they're on the pad in Cape Canaveral, Florida, right? But Houston is running the show from obviously Houston, Texas. They're monitoring. They're monitoring. Yeah. All they're right. Mon- they're they're not in any kind of control because the 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 craft was still on the ground. Got it. So before the fire takes place, there's a interesting chat between Gus Grissom and uh, somebody in control. He's talking about, and Grissom says, "So Grissom was not happy." Jesus Christ, say again? How are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two or three buildings? Another minute passed during which possible indications of crew movement could be heard in the crackling calm. And this is when it actually unfolds. So prior to the fire, they're having communications issues from the actual spacecraft itself mm-hmm. and just the guys outside. To, to launch control there at the cave. To launch control. So yeah. in the room next door. Right. And Gus Grissom is pissed. 
Another minute passed, during which possible indications of crew movement could be heard in the crackling calm. At four seconds past 6.31 p.m. on the Florida launch pad, a voice rang out in alarm. Some thought it was rookie Roger B. Chaffee, others white. Hey, two more calls, these likely from white. I've got a fire in the cockpit. The next began with either the singular pronoun I or possibly the plural we, while the next four words seemed unmistakable. Have a bad fire. The final transmission was determined to have come from Chaffee, and it was the most terrible and the most heartbreaking, the most sickening of all. It was a primal howl, perhaps attempting to actually say something or perhaps not, as the side of the command module ruptured with the force of the blaze. Hundreds of miles away in Houston, flight controllers monitoring the test from mission control on the second floor heard every brutal second. Mercy. Yeah. And that brought kind of NASA back to Earth. Yeah. Um, imagine being one of the controllers uh, sitting there and listening to that. How, how do you react? One, one person in particular was on console, and they found him after uh, his shift, after the shift was over, uh, after everything had unfolded. They found him out in the parking lot just wandering around with just the most horrible look on his face. And that was the last flight he ever worked on console. Uh, the, last, the last shift he ever worked on console. He went into doing other stuff. And, and worked at NASA for many years, but how, how do you react to something like that? Because that, that was one case, uh, that was a, an instance in which there was no help to be offered or, or given. Uh, and so that was, that was obviously a very helpful, uh, helpless feeling for them. Uh, but again, it, it created a, a widespread culture change at NASA in the mission control room. Gene Kranz uh, got the got the people together, and he said, "Here, here's what we're going to do from here on out." So, the uh, to that point specifically, you know, there's th- so you have a tragedy unfold, and you have the option of how to react to it. You know, some people react different ways. I think NASA's reaction to this collectively, there's a lesson to learn from that. They handled this with, hey, we're, we screwed up. We're you know, some humble pie, but also some, we're going to stay in this fight. You know, they had the option to just cancel the program. Uh, so I just want to talk about, you had mentioned how Gene Kranz got everybody together. And this was, I thought, a, a demonstration in taking ownership, uh, a cool, you know, a, a, a key point in what I think actual leadership is. So on the Monday following the accident, Gene Kranz told John Hodge, that he was calling a meeting in a Building 30 auditorium. His initial shock had turned to anger. Three astronauts were dead, astronauts that many in mission control knew well, and he had an inescapable, inescapable sense that the control room had somehow let them down. After a few remarks by Hodge, Kranz climbed the four steps to the stage. Searching at first for words, he began. Spaceflight will never tolerate carelessness, incapacity, or neglect. Somewhere, somehow, we screwed up. It could have been in design, build, or test. Whatever it was, we should have caught it. We were too gung-ho about the schedule, and we locked out all the problems we saw each day in our work. Every element of the program was in trouble, and so were we. 
the simulators were not working, mission control was behind in virtually every area, and the flight and test procedures changed daily. Nothing we did had any shelf life. None of us stood up and said, damn it, stop. As he continued speaking, the passionate fervor in Kranz's countenance took on that of a tent revival preacher. He did not know what the review board chaired by Langley Research Center Director Floyd L. Thompson would determine as the cause of the accident, but Kranz knew what he thought as he continued. We are the cause. We were not ready. We did not do our job. We were rolling the dice, hoping that things would come together by launch day, when in our hearts we knew it could take a miracle. We were pushing the schedule and betting that the cape would slip before we did. So he gets up there and is like, we screwed up. Yeah. This is on us. And Chris Kraft, um, he was involved in the um, Mission Control documentary, and he went so far as to say that he felt it was something very close to, if not approaching, uh, murder. That, that's how strongly he felt about it. But because of all the changes that were made and because of all the reassessments, we landed on the moon by the end of that decade. What did NASA change after that? How did the how did things well I, I get think, reevaluated? I think it I think it became um, you know they they took safety obviously more serious. Uh, they took procedures more seriously, um, and, and I, don't, I that, that's a, that's almost an unanswerable question because it wasn't any one thing. It was it it, it created a new culture. And whatever it takes to create a new culture is what happened. And, it again, it arrested the downhill, uncontrollable momentum that, that was taking place at that time. We were, we were geared up from Mercury. All the Mercury uh, issues had, had been taken care of. Uh, all the emergencies of, of the Gemini program had been taken care of. All the issues... Uh, they uh, they overcame numerous you know uh, engineering problems and and uh, incidents that happened. Uh, Gemini Eight had rolled uncontrollable uncontrollably uh, and was out of control. Uh, you know in, in space, Neil Armstrong got it back under control. They landed and then then they went on to the next flight. Gene Cernan had trouble. Uh, walking in space nearly died. Uh, the next flight did a little bit better, and then Buzz Aldrin on the final Gemini flight had hand controls and and or had uh, uh, you know uh, footholds and 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 handles on the sides of the spacecraft, so there's no problem. So you know if if we can do all that and we can do it in the, the span of a year or two, probably be no problem. You well, know, yeah, problems are going to happen. We can we can deal with them. Well, that didn't that that was proved wrong, uh, fatally wrong on on the night of January twenty seventh, nineteen sixty seven, and again it 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 gave NASA pause to reconsider its priorities and procedures, and that was that. So that was where they reevaluated things. Right. They changed things up. And they made it so that you talk about there was a decision. We could bail out of this whole thing, but NASA didn't. They said, no, 
we're staying in this fight and we're going to keep going. And that leads us to, we're going to skip forward a little bit to Apollo 8. Right. Chapter 5, Merry Christmas from the Moon. <laughs> I never knew this ever happened. Really? I, I mean, I'm not a, I mean, being a Marine pilot and all that stuff, I, I didn't know much about airplanes, honestly, before I started flying. I never knew much about NASA. This book was the first one I really got into that was... You, you almost said you weren't a space geek. You almost said that. What did I say? A space geek? Oh, yeah. I'm far from it. <laughs> far from it. But this was so cool to read. I was like, yeah. holy shit. And I yeah. wonder, I, I want to talk to like my parents, my grandparents, but do you remember what you were doing Christmas Eve, 1960, gosh, Apollo 8, 8, 1968. How old do you think I am? I don't know. How old are you? I was barely a year old, man. Okay. Come <laughs> Okay, this interview's over. So I wasn't around. Okay. I wasn't around yet. Get, get um, out, Marine. Not, not yet. <laughs> but this was 1968 yeah. Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas from the Moon. Right. I I bet most people that are listening to this, you know, my my 12 listeners, they have no idea this ever happened. Yeah. This was badass. Yeah. I thought this was freaking cool. Yeah. All right. So Apollo 8. What was the what was the main intent? What was the mission? Because each each mission itself, quote, right. had its own mission. Right. What was the mission of Apollo eight? Okay, so Apollo one happened in January of uh, nineteen sixty seven, and it was until I believe August of nineteen sixty eight before Apollo flew again with a crewed mission. Uh, that was the crew of Apollo seven. And the crew of Apollo, the the flight of Apollo Seven essentially just tested out the new command and service module um, in, in in Earth orbit and made sure that all the systems that had been reworked and and everything actually worked uh, or would work in spaceflight. And the problem with Apollo Eight was they were going to uh, they were going to te- do the same thing with the command and service module and the separate lunar lander. Uh, on Apollo 8, but uh, the lunar lander, uh, lunar module, was not ready yet. Uh, it, it, it was going through some delays from its uh, contractor. And so they, the NASA management got together and said, you know, what are we going to do? And somebody suggested, let's, let's just take the command and service module to the moon. That was in August. And they planned to go at Christmas. So, Six months. No. Uh, let's see. September, October, November. Four months. Four months. Four months. I gotta, okay. Four months. Four months. And normally for, for a, a mission at that time, you're talking about a year or more, 18 months to plan and conceive and everything. And listen, at that time, in, in August of that year, they hadn't done any studies about trajectory. They hadn't done any studies about, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but in order, uh, there were there were rumors that the Russians were going to attempt a, a crude flight to the moon. And so it became, uh, this was a, the, 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 the story is that they got together on a Friday and got some of their people together in, in charge of the systems and charge of trajectory, told them on a Friday afternoon, said, Take the weekend, figure out if you think it can be done, get back to us on Monday. I love it. On Monday. And uh, my friend Jerry, Bo- my very good friend Jerry Bostic was, was one of the people in that room. 
and he went home and he did whatever engineers do and he decided that he felt like it could be done and so just before christmas in 1968 america was on its way to the moon so this is after those changes had been put in place nasa had elected to stay in the fight this was uh it wasn't much it wasn't very long after apollo one tragedy yeah so from the book a bolt of energy or not, NASA was in the process of taking a calculated risk with its future. Barely 19 months had passed since a fire claimed the lives of the Apollo 1 crew and, quote-unquote, go fever, had helped seal its fate. In its, in its rush to the moon, issues were overlooked and three astronauts died as a result. Was the same thing in danger of happening again? The goal of beating the Soviets to the moon was admirable enough, but what might happen if another team of astronauts lost their lives in the process? A successful flight of Apollo 8 would only open the gates to a lunar landing, but that success was an awfully big mountain to clear. It was daring, Jerry Bostick says. A lot of hurdles had to be overcome. I knew it was risky, and we did take risks. Glenn Lunny and I in our old retirement years have sat around and talked about that was really what we were doing. We were in the risk management business. I thought that was a key key phrase, risk management business. We didn't call it that because we'd never heard that before, but that's what it was. We did take risks, but we were never reckless. I didn't think that on Apollo 8 we were doing anything that was reckless. So they've really, NASA as a whole, and especially, you know, Jerry Boss, the Glenn Lunny, the players at the time, they are, go fever is a thing of the past. They are, it seemed like the, they were totally comfortable canceling a mission at the most critical part. I mean, we're on that, we're on the one yard line mm-hmm. and we can go to the end zone, but if things don't look right, we're canceling. We're out of here. Yeah. So the ability to, and I think the, gosh, it's really cool to see the growth of, no, this isn't worth these dudes' lives. We're not doing this again. Yeah. We already had this happen. Look, if we can't go to the end zone with 100% confidence, we're not going. I love what Glenn Lonnie's quote was, uh, and I asked him about the Apollo 8 flight uh, in particular. He said, listen, our, our mandate was to go to the moon by the end of the decade. And if you're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade, sooner or later, you got to go to the moon. And if you think about that, there's a lot of weight in that statement. Sooner or later you got to get on with the program and go to the moon. you got to take that first step. And the, the thing about Apollo 8 in, in, in particular was just how quickly, how quickly it came together and how well it came together. There were, there were essentially, just off the top of my head, I cannot think of a single major glitch on, on that flight. And that's how well it came together in such a short amount of time. And that, that's, really, that's really the only flight that I can think of the entire Apollo program uh, about which you can say that, that, that there were so few glitches. I mean, they went to the moon, they went into lunar orbit, did 10, did 10 laps, then came home. So that was a, so to the moon and landing on the moon are two different things. Correct. So this Apollo 8 mission was... Because I, I learned this. I thought, hey, we went, we're going to the moon, Apollo 8. 
not actually going to go and land on the moon. Right. So what was their goal when it comes to going, quote unquote, to the moon? Well, number one, that they could get to the moon. Um, to its to inside the the moon's orbit. Yeah, to to lunar orbit. Lunar orbit. Um, and and here here's just the here's the major what if factor. The the crew of Apollo thirteen was was saved because of the lunar module. When when the oxygen tank on the command and service module exploded. They shut down the command and service module and got into the lunar module as a lifeboat. On Apollo 8, there was no lifeboat. There was no lunar module. And so if the same thing that had happened, if the same, if the oxygen tank had exploded on Apollo 8, those three astronauts don't come home, period, because they don't have a lifeboat. And so yes, it, it was a, it was a it was a study in risk management, but they they went to the moon. They went into Earth orbit. Uh, they read from Genesis on Christmas Eve, and then they came home. Hundreds of millions of people watched that broadcast, and and so it. The interesting thing to me is that of the people who worked in NASA in mission control at that time. Almost to a person, they consider Apollo 8 the highlight of their career more so than Apollo 11. So Apollo 8. That's this how is, major this was. This is the first time anybody had gone on the other side of the moon. Correct. Ever. Well, this, is, this was the first time that humans had gone to the moon, period. This was the first time that people had ever left Earth orbit. This was the first time that a crew had ever been put atop a... Um, Saturn V launch vehicle. The previous time that the Saturn V launch vehicle had been tested unmanned, all hell had broken loose and it had gone haywire, and the crew would not basically not have survived. The spacecraft didn't explode. The stack didn't explode. The capsule came home uh, without a you know uh, it, it came home intact, but. There were all kinds of problems. And off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you what the problems were. Uh, I can tell you that that it happened on the day uh, uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. But all kinds of problems happened. That was in April. And in December of that year, a crew climbed to the top of that stack and said, light her up, boys. Let's go. Jeez. The impact of that. Right. So a lot of people you talk to. Apollo 8 was their highlight. Right. So there is uh, – I was trying to understand the gravity of this mm-hmm. and how big of a deal this was. And as I read and just hearing people's reactions to this, it, it kind of kind of sent it home. So a little bit from the book, and this is in the chapter, Merry Christmas from the Moon. And you had mentioned a lot of people uh, tuned in to the broadcast of the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, walk around the moon. But this one, so, to your book. John Aaron had not seen anything yet. Apollo 8's second television broadcast from the moon, which started at 2.34 p.m. on Christmas Eve in Houston, 1968, some 16 hours after arriving in lunar orbit. It was estimated that 1 billion people in 64 countries saw or heard 
the live broadcast, with another 30 countries added later that same day with a delayed broadcast. By contrast, quote-unquote only, about 600 million people were said to have seen or heard the Apollo 11 moon landing. Yeah. And uh, there were people who worked in mission control who did not know that the the reading from Genesis was going to take place. Uh, one guy in particular, Rod Lowe, said that he actually had tears come to his eyes. Several people mentioned that that moment. And, you know, regardless of whether or not you're a person of faith, um, it, it, was, it was just a, a fitting moment for that to happen and it, on Christmas Eve and in 1968. 1968 – would would rival any in American history for uh, just terrible things happening. Uh, in April, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. In June, Robert Kennedy uh, was was assassinated, a presidential candidate. Um, that was the by far the deadliest year of the Vietnam War. Uh, there were protests all over the United States, college campuses, wherever, what have you. Uh, the the nation was literally coming apart at the seams, and this this event happened that was good, and it was I don't want to over dramatize it. It was good. It was righteous. It was the thing to do. It was a it was a it was the symbol of teamwork of of what a nation could do if it if it just focused together. Uh, and, and it was just a perfect moment in a terrible year. That perfect moment, again, I want to, I'm going to hand you your book. And if you wouldn't mind just reading, I've got it marked from the star to the star. Okay. What actually went on Christmas Eve, 1968 from the moon? Years after the fact, the reading Anders began moments later would still send chills through those who had worked in the Moker during the flight. We are now approaching lunar sunrise, and for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. Anders continued reading the first four verses of the King James Bible's book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Amen. I get goosebumps <laughs> out of that, man. Amen. I can't even imagine if, you know, if you're alive in 1968 with everything that's going on and you hear that. Yeah. Badass, man. Yeah. There's so much more that talks about the impact, how that had on people, especially at such a tumultuous historical time in America. Just really, really cool. Well, and again, I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned from that time uh, of what can be accomplished when we come together despite all the outside distractions. And there, I mean, you can't get any more serious a distraction than what was taking place in Vietnam 
than the assassinations. And, and again, there are a lot of lessons to be learned uh, from that for today's time. Totally agree. So the, the end of towards the end of this chapter, you finish up with uh, the story about Merry Christmas from the moon. All that was left now was to disappear behind the moon one last time, and while on the far side, to perform the trans-Earth injection burn to get out of lunar orbit and start the return journey. So this is so they've been in lunar orbit first time ever. They're in lunar orbit now. This is the first time ever they're going to try getting out of Earth lunar orbit. So they're going to escape the moon's gravity. Right. See, can you tell I'm such a NASA nerd? You know. <laughs> So they have to get out of the gravitational force of the moon and then get back into the gravitational force of the Earth. Right. So this is a big deal. All right. Beginning at just past midnight on Christmas Day and lasting three minutes and 23.7 seconds, Flight Director Milt Windler's maroon team was on console for the burn that hurtled the spacecraft earthward at a velocity of 8,842 feet per second. Apollo 8 had been in lunar orbit for 24 hours, 10 minutes, and 13 seconds for a total of 10 laps around the moon. Ken Mattingly was once again on duty as Capcom. What was Capcom? A capsule communicator. Capsule So he's the one that talked to the space. He did the talking. Okay. Right. After giving the crew a handful of cursory calls, he finally got a response from Jim Lovell aboard Apollo 8. Houston, Apollo 8, over. Hello, Apollo 8. Loud and clear. Roger, please be informed there is a Santa Claus. So it's a fact. (laughs) Santa Claus is real. That chapter was awesome. That was a, I had no idea any of that went down. Really, really cool. What do you think the biggest takeaway from the Apollo 8 mission was? The, the way that it was put to me was it proved that NASA could go to the moon. Again, Glenn Lundy said, you know, if the, if the goal is going to the moon, sooner or later you got to go to the moon. And it, the flight of Apollo 8 proved that it could be done. Now, of course, you know, there's, there's the landing, the, the undocking, the landing, the ascent from the lunar surface and the redocking and, and then coming home. But that was, you know, the the farthest NASA had ever, you know, the first furthest a, a spacecraft had ever uh, been from the Earth's surface at that point, I think was maybe 850 miles in, in altitude. And Apollo 8 went to the moon 249,000 miles away. So think about that. Think about that. Uh, the way that Jerry Bostic put, put it, uh, he said Apollo 8, uh, the cake was baked on Apollo 8, and uh, Apollo 11 was the icing on the cake. The cake was baked. 11 was the icing on the cake. Yeah. Okay. How much time are we at right now? What are Two we hours. Okay. So let's do this. <laughs> we'll call it. Okay. And then if it's okay with you for the next one, we'll start with Apollo 11 and 13. Cool. Just because – Well, you – Honestly, if you if if you if you talk about the lessons to be learned from the Apollo program, you you can't not talk about Apollo twelve. Okay, let's do eleven, twelve, thirteen. If yeah. that works for you, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's John Aaron and you know SCE to Ox and all that. So. Okay, awesome. 
I mean, it's your interview. No, I like it. No, yeah, it's, yeah, I, yeah. I know we could sit here and this would yeah. turn into freaking yeah. all day yeah. evolution. Yeah. No big deal. So we can change it up and edit right, this so out. So is it okay to hit? hit. So not yet. I'm going to do the conclusion. Okay. Okay. That's going to lead into, okay. right. uh, we talked about Apollo 8 and some really good stuff, the culture. And we're going to, on the second half, we're going to talk about how all those things have come together with Apollo 11, 12, and 13, all different in their own regard. So I'll end with this. Apollo 8 showed that human beings could journey to the moon and back. Apollo 11 and 12 showed that astronauts could land and walk on the surface. Apollo 13 proved mission control could bring those space voyagers back home again when their lives were on the line. There was no lunar landing during the flight of Apollo 13. No momentous words to be spoken from the surface. No rocks to be turned to Earth. What the mission did instead was unleash heroics of a different sort. It was almost as if the whole reason we were there was culminated in that moment, John Aaron began. The ground controllers worked so well as a team, we were able to successfully salvage that mission and get the crew home safely. Apollo 8 is a highlight in terms of what a country can do and what makes us feel good. Apollo 13 was the final proof of just what flight controllers could do. I think that's a good way to tie it into the next one. We're going to talk Apollo 11, 12, and 13 on the next one. Rick, it has been a pleasure, man. Thank you. This has been awesome. Do you have any, uh, you know, we call them saved rounds in the Marine Corps. Any any final, just closing thoughts before we talk about the next one? There's a lot of romance about the space program, uh, a lot of golly gee whiz about the space program, a lot of adventure. But again, there's no way to overstate it. The Apollo program proved what a nation can do when it is of one mind. NASA had the proper funding. It had the proper directive. It had a clear and concise objective. I mean, you can't get much clearer than go to the moon and come back. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of politicking to be done about that go come back and it was i don't want to say it was that simple because it was anything but simple but the apollo program proved what human beings can do when they put their minds to to something and you know not to put too fine a point on it uh, or not to put a political point on it but if we had continued the apollo program on the on the course that the apollo program had set you and i could be very well be having this conversation on the surface of mars it absolutely would have happened without a doubt that's a cool conversation right there absolutely would absolutely now there are those who would have said no it wouldn't happen but when you consider how far we came from 1961 when kennedy said we're going to go to the moon to the end of the program when we were staying on the moon for three days and working on the moon and living on the moon, if, if that course had continued for the next 10, 15, 20 years, yes, we're absolutely on the moon now. And not just, and not just getting out and walking around. We, there would be people living there full time. On Mars. On Mars. Jeez. That's a cool one. I like that. So, folks, Go Flight, the Unsung Heroes of Mission Control 1965 to 1992, Rick Houston. And Milt Heflin, phenomenal book. 
I'm not doing it justice by what we've talked about here. There's so much more to it. So read that. And then Rick, again, thank you for the time. I look forward to the next one. Great. Anything else? No, sir. All right. For Rick Houston and Susan, we're out of here, folks. See ya.